And just uh, notice the end of verse 56. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. And Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last, two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. The high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now we have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. And they did spit in his face and buffeted him. Another smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Now Peter sat without in the palace. And a damsel, a young woman, came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. And he denied before them all, saying, I do not know what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto him, unto them that were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him, they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. He sounded like a Galilean. Then began he to curse us and to swear, now it doesn't mean what we would think of that, to call down oaths and to swear oaths, to make great declarations, swear on the Bible or whatever. Uh, it wouldn't have been that in his day. And then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock will crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me three times and he went out and wept bitterly and again we'll just read the next little phrase when the morning was come now we know that God blesses the reading of his word in 1959 a book was written and in 1962 it was turned into a very famous film uh, long before the much more modern film on the D-Day landings, it was about the first 24 hours of the D-Day landings. It was set in a village in France, a village that for every occupant of the village there were three Germans 
soldiers in that village and it contained the headquarters of Field Marshal Urban Rommel of the German army and he made this statement on that day he said the next 24 hours will determine the fate of Germany and not only for us but for the Allies these 24 hours will be the longest day and the book and the film are in fact called The Longest Day he turned out prophetically in many ways to be true didn't he that what took place in those 24 hours did eventually determine the entire outcome and in many ways the fate of nations and the fate of large portions of the world after that longest day now when I come to these sections of Matthew's Gospel and you can see it a little bit clearer actually in Mark's Gospel strangely but when you come to it I think what we have an account here really is of the true longest day a 24-hour period upon which hung not just the future of a few nations or not just the future of a large part of the world, but upon which rested the potential salvation of the entire human race. And in this 24-hour period, and we're just going to look in this little section, is, is, is looking at one of it. It's, it's split. The Word of God is quite remarkable. You know, God has stamped on it what we call the proof of inspiration and he's put lots of pictures and patterns and things in there that I'm sure the writers as they wrote it had no realisation of what they were doing well the Bible says that, Peter says they were born along of the Spirit of God and you'll discover that there is a day presented to us here in these closing chapters and it is a 24 hour period and it actually divides remarkably into eight little sections and I would judge they're sections of three hours some of them are very easy to see uh, you'll find for example shortly when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to be crucified in the next chapter uh, you'll find out there were three hours in the morning from uh, roughly nine o'clock until noon and then there are another three hours described as the sixth to the ninth hour their day started at roughly six in the morning the sixth hour would be twelve noon and there was darkness over the, all the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour and if you were to look at this as a whole you would see where we're coming to here now is the three hours just before dawn and in a strange sense there's going to be a mirror image of them in the three hours after dawn in fact of the whole eight sections I just leave this for you to go and look at for yourself but there's just a remarkable picture that the spirit of God paints for us you know, if you'd just read back uh, a little bit uh, before this, uh, you would have read uh, when the evening was come. And of course the day in biblical times when evening and morning. Uh, right from Genesis chapter 1, the evening and the morning were the first day. And the day starts at sunset. And you would discover that in the evening, in the first three hours I would judge or thereabouts, the Lord Jesus is with his disciples and he did what some of us have been doing this morning. He took a loaf and he took a cup and they were the symbols, the emblems of his body and his death. And loving hands took them and dispensed them to the disciples. If you go to the other end of the 24 hour period, you'll come to the three hours just before the next uh, dusk and you'll discover that once again loving hands 
will come and take that body this time it will be his real body and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who I would judge are absent in what's happening here they would come and take him down from the cross and if you looked at the next uh, period after the institution of the Lord's Supper uh, you would have discovered that the Lord Jesus is in Gethsemane and again you can sense that it's three hours because three times he goes away and prays and says to the disciples could you not watch one hour could you not watch one hour and the third time and there he contemplates what it is going to be to be in the hands of a holy God he says if it be possible let this pass from me nevertheless not my will he is contemplating the awfulness of what is going to take place on Calvary's cross in fact if you go to the other end of the day and not now the second three hours but the second last three hours it's not now being contemplated it's being accomplished and you've got three hours of darkness which just correspond to those three hours in Gethsemane and the Lord Jesus contemplating what it will be to be in the hands of the Holy God and then experiencing what it is as in those three hours of darkness well he tells us what the issue is he says, my God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? In those hours of darkness he dealt with sin. The sinless Holy One was made sin for us. Around the midnight hour, a throng came. About 600 of them probably, judging by the words that are, that are used to describe the Roman cohort that was with them. You read about it being the wicked one's hour and the hour of darkness. That's why I judge it would be the midnight hour. And that throng took him, and that's probably what you were looking at last week. And that finished with the words that we started with tonight. The disciples forsook him and fled. And in those three hours he was in the hands of wicked men. Rough men. Hard men. Men who belittled him and arrayed him and mocked him and struck him there was a corresponding three hours to that and that was the first three hours on the cross when men did their worst before he went into the hands of God so from loving hands to the hands of God to the hands of wicked men but on the three hours on either side of dawn the Lord Jesus finds himself in the hands of the authorities and we have before us Matthew's account of the three hours immediately before dawn and you'll notice we read the first verse of the next chapter and that first verse of the next chapter says when the morning was come what happened in those six hours three hours either side of dawn are six trials our account here is probably dealing largely it's mentioning in passing perhaps the second one but I think it's largely dealing with the third one in the first three hours the Lord Jesus is taken before the Jewish authorities if you read John's gospel and compare the gospels you'll discover the first place he went to was a man called Annas and then he went from Annas to the man who is referred to here and uh, in the verses that we've read we read straight away in verse 57 they led him away to Caiaphas the high priest but of course Annas was also the high priest 
Luke, who is a historian, when he's writing his gospel, he tells us about all the key players. And he says, it was in the days of Tiberius Caesar, not no, the days of Augustus, he's, he's gone and now it's Tiberius. And he says, in the days of, of Herod, and it's a different Herod too by this stage, and of Philip, and he gives you the four tetrarchs who ruled, and then he says, and there were two high priests, Sanus and Caiaphas. You'll also discover if you read in John's Gospel that these two men were a father-in-law and a son-in-law. I, I don't know how many different ways they could have smashed God's law to pieces as they stood in judgment on the Son of God himself. Because the Bible was very clear, there's only ever one high priest at a time, not two. And it doesn't pass from a father-in-law to a son-in-law. It passes only from a father to a son. And they have to go all the way back to Aaron through Levi. And it's extremely dubious that either of these men had any credentials whatsoever. And they've ridden asunder over God's law and over God's requirements and over God's demands. And they've set them to one side. In fact, the very fact that they're meeting here in darkness was totally and utterly contrary to their own rules and regulations. But they're so opposed to the Son of God that they no longer care about contravening the Lord of God. We're in a world today, by the way, that's just heading in the same direction. Very emotional to hear the words of our late Queen. We wonder if we'll ever see her likes again. In a world where if a politician had said any of those things that we've just heard, their career would be over before the following morning, they'd be finished, they'd be out the door. You see that just in recent days. There's one just last week. Because he stated that his view was that unborn children had a right to life, he's been very heavily censured and he's right on the brink of being kicked out. Previous leader of one of the parties who, again, professes Christianity, has now made the statement and said it's impossible to lead a political party in this country and be a professing Christian. Well, this is the very Son of God, and they bring him before Annas first, and then Caiaphas, and then the whole Sanhedrin. And you can see in the verses before us what they brought him for. They're charging him with blasphemy. When they're finished, on the other side of dawn, they'll take him to the Roman authorities. The reason being very simple. The penalty for blasphemy was stoning. And if they could, they would have taken him out and stoned him. But there's two reasons they didn't. Uh, one is, the Romans would not have permitted it. They did not have the authority to carry out the death penalty. And the Romans didn't carry out stoning. The Romans carried out crucifixion. And the word of God, historically in the Old Testament, a millennium before these events, had very confidently predicted precisely how the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would die when he came into this world. He would die by a means of execution that hadn't even been devised. They would pierce his hands and his feet. People reading that in the Old Testament must have wondered, what all the world can that possibly mean? Because they'd never heard of crucifixion. 
And he would be taken and he would be put on a tree and the scripture had said, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. And God had outlined this horrendous method of death that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to experience. And what I want you to see in this, and the reason I went through those eight phases, is to let you see from this, and Peter is a character who plays a huge part in this. And Peter is also the fellow that I think that gives us the fullest explanations of what was happening that day. He looks at it from all the different angles. But what I wanted you to see from those eight periods of three hours, that in the midst of all of this, the disciples have all forsaken him and fled. He's completely on his own. And yet, he is in complete and total and absolute control of the whole situation. <laughs> doesn't look that way. Peter, later on, will explain it this way. He says, who by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He says, I want you to be very clear about this. He's on that cross. He's experiencing this trial. He's going through all of this because God has determined that that's what must happen. And in Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus had contemplated it. And he realized that there was no other way. Him writer puts it this way. There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. And so it proceeds. And they proceed with the trial so-called. And as we say, there's three of them before dawn. And after dawn, they send him to Pilate. And Pilate then will send him to Herod. And Herod will send him back to Pilate. And again, each of them on every occasion will proclaim this. I find no fault in him, neither does Herod. This man has done nothing worthy of death. But then they sentence him to death. Not to the stoning that the Jews would have liked. But to the crucifixion that God had predicted and that God demanded. God was in control of all of this. Oh, he's not only there because of that. The wickedness of men is seen. Man's responsibility is there. In fact, Peter tells us that as well. This is what he says to the... It's interesting. This is the account. We're not going to say a lot of it. But it is the account of Peter's denial. It's a very sad thing. You know, they, they say to Peter... Uh, you notice the, the, the second of the three times they, they said this to him. You were with that Jesus of Nazareth. 22 times the Lord Jesus is described as Jesus of Nazareth. And if you study them, a lot of them are repeated in the two different Gospels. But either they're repeated or what's said afterward is the same on two occasions. For example, there are two occasions when we read, Jesus of Nazareth, thou son of David. And so the 22 fall into 11 little pairs. And one of the pairs is Peter described twice as being accused of being with Jesus of Nazareth. And it's the only two occasions of the 22 when something Christ-exalting is not immediately said afterwards. So for example, even when Pilate puts it on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the two on the road to Emmaus say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God. The blind man cries out, Jesus of Nazareth, thou son of David. And you look through them for yourself, 20 times, 10 pairs you'll see, every time something Christ exalting is immediately said, with one exception. The two occurrences, when what Peter said, is recorded. I'm not going to be critical of Peter, because I think he's a, a great man in so many ways, and we all make the same mistakes, and I wonder, talking to Christians today, 
How many times do we have the opportunity to say something Christ-exalting about Jesus of Nazareth? And we don't do it. Wasn't it good to hear the Queen saying something? I used to listen. I'm not being overcritical here. Well, maybe I am. <coughs> but it was my practice for a number of years. My mother, who was called home just a few years ago, you know, at three o'clock on a Christmas day, <laughs> everything had to stop. And uh, she was of a generation of very similar age to Her Majesty, and we had to sit and watch the Queen at three o'clock. And I had a little practice. I used to listen to the speeches that were made that day by various others archbishops, moderators, popes. Staggeringly, the most likely one of those three to hear something about Christianity from was the Pope, sadly. But the only one you could be guaranteed year in, year out, would say something Christ-exalting, was their majesty. Staggering, really. My brother-in-law, who's not a believer, used to listen to some of the, uh, uh, the great ecclesiastical figures, and he used to say, that boy's in the wrong job. <laughs> He's not a Christian. He used to say, these boys are in the wrong job. Sadly, on this occasion, Peter never said anything Christ-exalting. He denied three times. But it is Peter who tells us exactly what's going on here, what it's all about. He said to the people, he's there because you put him there. He says, ye denied the Holy One and just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Peter makes it very clear. He is there because those people, both the Jews, he says, and you delivered him into wicked hands. So the Jews required it, the Romans carried it out, and Peter says, make no mistake about it, that's why he's there. He says, but that's not the only reason he's there. We've already said he's there because God demands it. He's there by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Uh, but Peter tells me eventually there's another reason he was there. This is what Peter says is in the epistle. He says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Peter says he's there because of me. He's there because I put him there. He's there because of my sin. Now my friend, you can only say what Peter said. If you have personally put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted that you are the guilty one and that he is the innocent one and that he bore the penalty that was due to you. Thankfully, as Her Majesty reminded us, his death was not the end, he rose and as she pointed out, our entire faith is based on that resurrection, that wonderful event, when he demonstrated that he could go into death and come out of death and he could defeat it, and that is why, if you put your trust in him, you will not perish but have eternal life, as we were singing with the children. So the Lord Jesus goes before these men and they make these accusations and he doesn't speak out himself. The prophecies, Isaiah 53 had said, as a sheep before a shearer's is done, he opened not his mouth. A travesty of justice, no witnesses for the defence, witnesses, have, they finally find witnesses, the temple had taken 46 years for Herod to build, glorious edifice, and they find witnesses that claim, he says, uh, I can take it down and, uh, and build it again in three days. But of course he wasn't talking, if you look at the passage, he wasn't talking about that physical temple he was talking about his own body the dwelling place of God the only human being upon God could complacently rest in the history of this world my beloved son in whom I am well pleased 
And he says, they'll take me and they'll destroy this little temple. They'll put me on a cross. They'll crucify me. But after three days, I'll rise up again. Oh, they never understood that. But listen, look at what else he told them as I draw to a close. He says, by the way, you'll see me again. Ooh. Did you just notice that? I have a red letter Bible and in all of that passage that we've just read there's only one little splash of red. I say unto thee hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He gives them a warning. And I need to give you a warning this morning as we close this meeting. If you don't meet Jesus Christ now as a saviour you'll meet him one day as a judge. That's what he's telling these people. They stood on judgment upon him. Whited sepulchres that they were as he told them. But one day. He's going to sit in judgment upon them. And if they've never repented and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to face the awfulness of the judgment of God. An eternal separation. These are really solemn things. But I hope you and I can be like Peter today and realise that yes he was there because the Jews wanted him there. And yes he was there because the Romans put him there. And yes he was there because it was a determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. But above all he was there because of you and because of me. And I hope everyone here can say, having put their trust in the Lord Jesus, he bore my sins. He took my place. I put him there. But now I'm saved. And it's a wonderful message, isn't it? And a sad week. It's great to have this wondrous message. The Queen spoke of sad years. And Anna Scribblers, as she once put it. And she turned back to the glory of this message. And I just point you in the same direction today. A saviour who came into the world. And here he is at the hands of men experiencing this ignominy and even the denial of Peter. But we know that Peter was gloriously recovered. And when he was recovered, he preached this wondrous message. And we've taken some of his words to preach it to you today. And we just trust that you'll come to find the Saviour. That Peter knew. The one who can take his sin and deal with it once and for all. We trust that God may bless his word. Just commend ourselves in prayer. Father we give thanks for the wonder of scripture for these events recorded so long ago for the wonderful example of our saviour when he was reviled he reviled not again when he suffered he threatened not we thank thee father as he stood before these men who he held their very breath in his hand he suffered the ignominy and shame that sinners heaped upon him and beyond that he went to a cross and he suffered what it meant to be made sin for us we thank thee for the blessed person of the Lord Jesus. Our God, our desire is that everybody here and all of these little ones who have listened to thy word through the back, that they would all come to personal knowledge of Christ as their saviour and know the wondrous truth of sins forgiven. And in this sad world, we thank thee, Father, for the joy that will be in heaven over one sinner repenting. We pray for thy blessing on thy word, on everybody who's been here. We thank thee for their presence. We ask our God that thou will just bless them now for being here. We pray for the events that will happen in our nation in days to come. We remember those in authority and pray for them. We ask our God that the reading of thy word might bring forth fruit. And that as millions perhaps listen to the word of God in circumstances that they normally wouldn't. And as even as perhaps some will read it who wouldn't normally read it, 
we ask Father that the power of thy word would be seen in the transformation of lives our God we bow humbly before thee thank thee for thy goodness to us and offer thee our prayers in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. Amen. Now thank you so much for your time and for listening and for the fellowship over the weekend with yourselves. I'm well kinda of having the rest of the day off with five grandchildren. I'm not quite sure that's what you can call it. But nevertheless, uh, we do wish you every blessing and thank you for the time that we've had with you over the weekend.